I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, historian and author Amity Schlaes, who describes herself as a small government classical liberal, is the author of the best-selling The Forgotten Man and a new book, The Great Society. She talks about the federal government's coronavirus response through the lens of past crises, such as the 1918 flu, the Great Depression, and the 2008 global recession. We're going big. The expression, we could do it two ways. We could keep going back every day or every week. Uh, We're going big. And uh, that's where... Uh, Mitch McConnell, that's the way he wants to go. That's the way I want to go. I think we want to get it done and uh, have a big infusion as opposed to going through little uh, meetings every every couple of days. We don't want to do it that way. We want to go big, go solid. The country is very strong. We've never been so strong, and uh, that's what we're going to be doing. We don't want, uh, with this invisible enemy, we don't want airlines going out of business. We don't want people losing their jobs or not having money to live when they were doing very well just four weeks ago. So we're going big, and that's the way it'll be, and that's the way everybody seems to like it on the Hill. Historian and author Amity Schles, that's President Trump and one of his recent announcements about the goals on a big series of economic relief packages to stem the economic impact of the coronavirus. Other world leaders are doing the same. As we start out here, since you're looking at this through the lens of history, are there really any good historical parallels for the COVID-19 crisis? The crisis is beginning to look like 1929-30, but it also looks like 1918-1919-1920. And I'm honored to be here, I should say, uh, to discuss all these parallels. I want to mention the one 1819-20 because we never think of that. Remember the crash in The Great Gatsby? That was the crash of the early 20s, not the crash of 29 People thought America would never come back from the big upheaval of World War One. That's what was going on. At that time, there was inflation. We were getting over a flu, the Spanish influenza. All this was going on. And at that time, the government took a policy. The policy was, let's pull out of the way. The government was, response was so counterintuitive, it's almost impossible to utter it now. The government said, we'll shrink our government, we'll go big in cutting our government, which is the opposite of President Trump, and we'll actually raise our interest rate to be sure money comes here. Raise interest rates going into a recession? Very counterintuitive. And there was a sharp snap, but then there was a very strong recovery, a roar even, the roar of the 1920s. So you want to think of um, all different models of how to respond to a crisis like this one. And they aren't all going big with government intervention, Susan. But with the, the economy and the, the, the global economy being so much different than it was 100 years ago, do the parallels still hold? Yes, the parallels still hold. Indeed, in a way, they hold more because the U.S. dollar and we are kind of held harmless in crises, right? What happens when the world is a crisis? Money runs to us, doesn't it? When the U.S. misbehaves, people buy our bonds. Money runs to us. In those days, the stakes were even higher because we were in competition with the United Kingdom to be the world power. We had just become de facto the world power on the basis of our performance in World War I. We were about to lose that if we weren't relatively competitive with the UK, which had been the power before, right, the empire. Um, We got into a competition right at the beginning of the 20s with the UK about who had the better economy. The UK went social democratic and the US went free market. It's as simple as that, the US prevailed. Um, You know, we remember the labor period of the 1920s is a very rough period for the United Kingdom. That's when the phrase the dole became the the pejorative for welfare. Um, So it it, um, but the point to your point of does it matter about being international? It always does. Our currency would have been the, the casualty in the early 20s had we not. Uh, kept our house in order. It always does, whether or not it, it, it's merely trade. You often say that nothing is new, it's just forgotten. So with that in mind, what are the most significant lessons we can learn, not just from 1918 through 1921, but from the other past 
national emergencies this country has gone through? Well, in my book, The Forgotten Man, I trace all the remedies that we applied with the crash and then the Great Depression. And every year there were new remedies, helping banks, helping businesses, moratoria, you hear the phrase moratorium now, um, for debt, international moratorium on debt, Herbert Hoover, um, make work jobs, shovel ready jobs, helping um, new, helping uh, big transportation industries. We're talking about airlines now, they spoke about railroads then. And yet in the 29, 30, 31, 32 period, 33 period, 34, we never came all the way back to where we'd been in 29. And what I discovered doing the research, Susan, of that period was that the government intervened too much. There's a wonderful uh, economist of the period who's kind of not present in our current books named Benjamin Anderson. He was the chief economist at Chase Bank, so he wasn't exactly um, marginal at the time. Benjamin Anderson said, the solution when you fail at playing God is not to play God more vigorously. That is, sometimes the government can't rescue a situation. Sometimes markets are better at rescuing a situation. That was the lesson of the 1930s. Every year there was the possibility of the recovery in 1930s, and recoveries are like people. Every year, for a different reason, the recovery chose to stay away. So you have a decade of recovery not choosing to come back and double-digit unemployment for a good share of the period. So before we dig more deeply into history, um, a little bit of explanation to our Q&A viewers, because this will be in the archives forever, and it looks different from most of them. Uh, you're joining us by Skype in the midst of the COVID virus response, the crisis that the country and the world is facing right now. How, how are you weathering it? Where are you and what are you doing to protect yourself and your family? Oh, we're weathering it just fine. Um, the uh, My family and I are in Maine part of the time, and we're in Maine right now. We're very proud to be here. And yeah. when, what, when you look around your community, which I presume is uh, very much different than working in New York right now, uh, how are people in the community responding? What are you seeing about society as you're observing the response to this? Well, I'd certainly like to praise Oxford County and Cumberland County, Maine, which do have some COVID um, for their friendliness, their post offices, their supermarkets, including Food City, the underdog supermarket in Bridgeton, Maine. Um, we were just there. Uh, and everyone is going out of their way to help other people in a stressful moment. Everyone's social distancing, the library's closed, but we're all waving vigorously at one another as we walk the street. You have a brand new book on the market, so tell me, tell me and tell our, our viewers about it, please. This book is about a period which is different to our own in that it was prosperous. It was like us a month ago, where we thought we could afford everything, which was the early 60s. And in that period, uh, young people, as now, so a lot of parallels who were quite idealistic, and they said, why not socialism? Isn't it time for socialism in the United States? And there was a big discussion. Um, by socialism politically, of course, we meant in the end social democracy. That is expansion of state from 20 to more percent of the economy if we could get it. Um, expansion of um, social programs, the creation of entitlements. And everyone just said, why not? We can afford it. The lesson of the 1960s um, was that m most of the projects we undertook to get to our great society, that was the goal. Again, another echo. We wanted not just a good society, a great society didn't work out. And the book traces all those efforts um, and all the people who led the efforts in the 1960s to make America something better. So while the course of the economy is different to that of, that of now, the idealism and the ambition is quite similar, Susan. And, you know, uh, just for a benchmark, we said we would cure poverty. The president used the verb cure, C-U-R-E. We did not cure poverty. We flattened the curve of poverty to 10%. Um, the president said 
we're we can take growth for granted really what happened as a result um, relating to the stock market is super relevant because you want to think about now when do we expect the stock market to come back we hope this year we hope next week we certainly count on three years from now the stock market did not go up from the mid 60s until Ronald Reagan's presidency and that's not reflecting inflation which makes it look even worse the stock market flattened out for a decade and a half plus oh um, that that's a real warning to us of government ambition because the government tried too much and the stock market went to sleep and what is the relationship between the stock market and the US economy well at the time, the stock market um, was, was, I would say it's a, a good meter. It's like one of the meters the doctor say because it's either blood pressure or heartbeat. Um, maybe you just call it blood pressure. Maybe you call it cholesterol, but it's an important meter. What it really is, the market, um, is often the reflection of future expectations. So you say, are we going to grow as fast as we did in the past? No, we're growing okay, but we're not going to grow as fast as we did in, his, in the past, or is the quality of the growth we're going to have going to be the same as the quality in the past? No, not quite. Then the stock market will pull back. The stock market will respond exact with exaggeration often to hope, particularly hope in the area of freedom and innovation. And there were parts of the economy in the 60s that offered a lot of innovation, a lot of freedom, and a lot of future jobs. One of the companies I trace in the book, Great Society, is the Fairchild, the company that became Intel. Um, we, we didn't realize that chips mattered. And, oh, well, that, that things that the military used, such as electronics, because at the time, who would buy material from a company like Fairchild? It would be the federal government in a NASA program or something like that. All of a sudden came this insight that people might want electronics in their home appliances. They might want such a thing as a home computer. And this, this idea went wild in the 60s. So what I saw in tracing the 60s, Susan, was that there was a lot of hope for growth in the private sector, and we probably should have looked to it more. It certainly provided more of the jobs in the long run. Your uh, book the, on the Great Society follows your much-awarded and best-selling The Forgotten Man. You also continue to write opinion columns for publications. From what worldview, for people for whom this is the first experience of Amity Schles, what is your world outlook that informs your writing? I'm what they call a classical liberal, which doesn't mean a progressive. Uh, a classical liberal believes in freedom. He, she believes in markets. And believes not in no government, um, not like a libertarian. Um, classical liberals tend to believe some wars uh, warrant prosecution, um, but in less government. I, I was thinking, um, trying to think of, you know, philosophers. I was once honored to win a prize named after Bastiat, a French philosopher, who was popularized in America by Henry Hazlitt. Some viewers will have the book Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt. Anyhow, Bastiat spoke of, and it's absolutely apropos for this week, the seen and the unseen. He said, when you do good for the seen, that is, you create a job this week for this group, you might hurt the unseen. And you think about that now. Every day that we stay home, we're saving a life, maybe lives. We hope. That's the seen. But the unseen is the diffuse damage of keeping the economy turned off. Maybe we're hurting a life or even killing someone by getting rid of his job. Maybe his job won't come back. That trade-off between the immediate seen advantage or the immediate seen horror and the unseen that's more diffuse is the trade-off political economies have to make. So so very difficult one to do. Um, well, I have to keep everyone home so certain groups live. We all feel that with our hearts. But it's a question how many weeks we can shut down our economy without far greater costs, including doubtless deaths. Well, our focus is going to be on political and economic responses in history. Uh, but while you're talking about the classical liberal worldview, uh, the lens on what you put things, how do you, does it apply to watching the uh, public health side 
of the government's reaction. Lots of intervention, lots of moving parts around, et cetera. Uh, it, it's a time when the government is taking a lot of action to help ensure uh, the, the, the spread of the virus. So how does that process from a political standpoint or your world look? Well, we're seeing, we're, we have great hopes for what the government can do. But what's interesting right now is, of course, we're looking to the private sector. What are we looking for? The vaccine, the antiviral, right? We're praying that XYZ company that we've never heard of will next week come up with a cool antiviral, a combo of antivirals. So a classical liberal would say, be sure the private sector has the opportunity to provide the benefits to the entire economy that it has the capacity to provide. Don't inhibit it too much. So if we have to look at experimental drugs, well, maybe suddenly that begins to sound reasonable, right? Looking at experimental drugs. Well, what are the risks when we try a drug that, you know, and so on. So that's how a classical liberal would look at it. He wouldn't or she wouldn't say, oh, only the government can decide everything and make anything safe. There is no ultimate safety, is there? There's just relative safety. We want to be as safe as we can be. We can never be perfectly safe. Um, so on the other extreme, you'd have the health authorities running everything and making all the decisions. There's a whole body, actually, of um, political economy that you normally wouldn't bring up uh, called utilitarianism, where they quantify things um, very cutely. A, a good unit is a util, that is a good for someone, and a bad unit is a disutil, a negative. It, it, this is a calculus everyone makes. How, if I benefit all, will I hurt some? How much is the the loss of one person um, offset by the gain for the rest. Is that fair? Is it moral? So it's a wonderful time for classical liberalism. I recommend um, everyone go on a reading course and read uh, not only Bastia, but also the utilitarians, maybe Jevons, certainly John Stuart Mill, because this question of the public health has been around a long time. It was around with the smallpox vaccine. Well, some people uh, didn't do well with the first smallpox vaccines. You know, you think of the stories, but probably most of the time the smallpox vaccine was worth it. Eventually it became, um, you know, a saintly product, right, for all that it saved. It, these trade-offs have happened in American history and world history so many times before. So returning to 1918, 675,000 Americans died from what was then called the Spanish flu. In what ways did society change as a result of that experience? You know, I don't know. Society at that time, I think that Americans thought the flu was part of the war because it came just after the war, all this trouble, right? Imagine a war where a third or more than men came back severely disabled, missing one leg, never able to work again, uh, in pain for the rest of their lives, maybe a quarter, maybe 10%, but a significant amount because they used to amputate legs when they were bad in that period before antibiotics. And then the flu on top of it, um, it, it, it all affected the country. It sobered the country. A lot of people's lives were not optimal. Uh, and the question was how to persevere it was just a terrible, tragic period. I've studied um, this period quite a bit because in my biography of President Coolidge, he was lieutenant governor of Massachusetts in 1918, the year of the big hit from the influenza. And he actually, and um, people who like contradictions will like this, Coolidge's lieutenant governor wrote President Wilson and said, help. Uh, he wrote other governors and said, help us. He wrote to the governors of the states around him, including his home state, Vermont, and said, help us. And in Vermont and in Massachusetts, particularly in Massachusetts, there, because the people were closer, they were in, living in a more modern fashion, there were a lot of shutdowns. Uh, schools, there was an announcement schools would shut down this September, just as there might be now. Um, and it was just one more like Calvary to endure. Uh, fortunately, the, the flu went away, and there was also some, you know, I, I'm not a public health expert, but the, the flu appeared to go away after a while, and the country just kind of 
um, absorbed a terrible loss and moved on. What were the political effects? Woodrow Wilson was president when it first arrived, but we had a succession of Republican presidents after that. Was there a correlation between the recession and the flu, the conduct of the war, and what people were choosing at the polls? Well, there was a great hygiene movement, right? So, so you want to imagine the first hand-washing movement, and some of that's in the Library of Congress. Wash your hands. It was, it was very powerful because there were no antibiotics. There were a lot of... Um, uh, quacks coming out. You want to look for the quacks to come out. Now, that is uh, ideas that seem a little off, but might be worthwhile or, you know, or true quackery. But I honestly don't think it was a Republican or a Democratic problem at the time, because nobody really at the time believed the government could do much about an epidemic. The federal government, they looked to the states and the towns, they looked to themselves, and they understood that sometimes Um, disease came that couldn't be stopped because we have so much more in our pharmacopoeia in our medical arsenal now we look more to governments because they can deliver a company can make the vaccine the government might help to deliver it or the government might get in the way of the delivery of the vaccine so that is a different period they they were you know in that period people expected to see death in their surroundings I'm not recommending we return to that, but that was the fact of life. And you see that actually, Susan, in President Coolidge's life, because unfortunately, President Coolidge lost a son while he was president, Calvin Jr. Calvin Jr. was a happy boy, a lovable boy who got a blister playing tennis on the White House court. The president watched him from his little office and felt happy when he saw his son playing tennis. And then this. The blister became septic, the son died, Calvin died, 16 years old, within a week. And there was not much anyone could do about it because we didn't have antibiotics. They did terrible things to Calvin Jr. to try to save him, dumping antiseptics in his blood. I mean, all the desperate measures you would take. He went to Walter Reed, the whole thing, but they couldn't save Calvin. And when I tried... Many people, and I wrote for the White House Historical Association a paper about the death of Calvin Jr. um, for their wonderful book, Death in the White House. And they asked me, how did he take it? Um, And I'd say, you know, Coolidge was very sad. He wasn't um, incapacitated by the death, but he was very sad. Why wasn't he incapacitated the way we might be today, losing a child? And the answer is twofold. One is, All around him, he knew people who had lost children. Today, when you lose a child, you're alone. There's nobody around you who's lost a child. You have to go find a club on the internet of people who lost a child like you. It's a tragedy you just can't imagine. In that period, that tragically too, many people had lost a child. Vice President Dawes, the vice president who preceded President Coolidge in the White House, that is Wilson's vice president, He had lost a sibling when he was a child. So it wasn't so unusual, as horrible as it was. And I think that gave people a sense um, that they could go on because they had seen others in their situation go on. And the second reason the period was different, I will say, is religious faith. Uh, The Coolidge's turned to their faith and to God when they lost Calvin. There's a wonderful story, um, and I'm only telling this so long because we're in a period now where we're beginning to lose people, um, about a story about the Coolidge's considering how to mourn their son, Calvin Jr. And the president said, well, wear a black armband to connote warm um, mourning, but I, I don't want my wife to wear black. I want her to wear white like an angel. Um, because that's the spiritual place we're in. We're thinking of our angel. I don't want to too much paraphrase Coolidge, who wrote about this himself so beautifully, but we're thinking of our lost child and him in heaven. We think, we hope to meet him there. Mrs. Coolidge put Calvin Jr.'s Bible in his casket when he was buried in uh, Plymouth Notch, Vermont. I hope you all visit uh, Calvin Jr.'s grave there. It's right by the president's. But it was a much more spiritual time in some ways, and also a period of spiritual rebirth for the country. I'm not saying religion um, is a substitute for medically saving people. I'm just describing 
how people consoled themselves and moved forward through faith in that period. Coolidge joined the Congregational Church, First Church in Washington, subsequent to the, I think it was subsequent, uh, around the time of the death of his son. Let, let me not say subsequent, around the time. Um, and he wrote um, later that he should have joined a church earlier, Susan. He was always kind of a non-joiner. His wife did the church work for them. And that his own decision not to join the church earlier might have been the counsel of the devil. So think about that kind of talk. Uh, and we all have relations who talk that way in the past, or we've read books about it, or we know people who talk that way. But it, it's not standard television, I'll say that. During this period, we are seeing our current Treasury, Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, uh, being very visible and uh, explaining to the public the need for federal intervention. During the 1920s, the uh, Treasury Secretary at the time, Andrew Mellon, had a very important role. I, I want to show you a video of historian David Kennedy from October of 2006, where he talks about Treasury Secretary Mellon and then have you comment on the role he played in guiding the nation during this time. Mellon, in a sense, does invent the idea of trickle-down economics. That's to say that if you can make an economy prosperous, if the rich get richer, actually everybody else will get richer sooner or later. And during the, the course of the Roaring Twenties, many of them did. And as I say, Mellon is enormously important in restoring international financial stability as well. So it's not surprising that Mellon was, in fact, the most celebrated member of these Republican administrations through until 1929, and was seen as somebody who had been astonishingly successful. And here we have, in a sense, the banker as hero, the man who has had a brilliant career in business, now applying these business talents to the restoration and recovery of the nation and of the international economy, and doing so with astonishing skill, justifying, as it seemed, the belief that the best people to run any federal government ought to be business people because the business of America was business. Mellon's great mistake was that he didn't quit in 1928 when Coolidge very shrewdly did quit. How many Schley's your reaction? That he didn't quit. Um, that's a, I, I, by the way, I love the Kennedy book, and I was just listening to it this weekend. I recommend it to everyone. But let's, let's analyze the different the different um, points that David has made. His greatest mistake was that he di didn't quit. Well, that's kind of a sports answer. You don't want to be in a game where on the losing side, so you shrewdly quit. Uh, there's another way to answer that. Is, if Mellon was such a grand treasury secretary and central banker, he ought to have stayed for troubled times along with the easy times, right? So we don't want to switch into sports mode and you know be amoral and say, well, if he, his failure is he didn't quit. If Mellon failed, um, I, I, it's hard to see where he failed, I would say. Um, the stock market went too high. That's the 29 problem, discrete from the 1930s, I argue, for, forgotten that. The stock market went too high. It more than tripled from around the time Coolidge came into office. So it goes from 100 to 200 to 300 to 381. That's the high. Well, that's awful high. It probably is going to drop. Shrewdly, I will uh, skip out of the political scene and let other people suffer the crash. Okay. Um, separately, the federal government wasn't in charge of the stock market. The stock market was regulated in the states where stock markets operated. So in New York, we had the Martin Act. Um, in Massachusetts, where Coolidge had been governor, the state of Massachusetts regulated stocks. That's why Coolidge regulated Charles Ponzi, the famous Ponzi scheme, where uh, you just took in money to give out money, a, f a false business, right? So there was nobody's notion, nobody had the notion that the federal government would be in charge of a market crash. Coolidge had experienced, I, I believe, uh, five market crashes in his adulthood, and the federal government usually um, hadn't intervened. Theodore Roosevelt liked to intervene, but the other governments hadn't. And then the market eventually had come back. And that was the modus operandi for Mellon as well. As mighty as Mellon was, it was said for, of Mellon that three presidents served under him when he was Treasury Secretary. Um, he, he didn't dream that he would be in charge of the stock market. It was like J.P. Morgan's comment when Morgan was asked what the market will do. Well, it will fluctuate. 
it, it, so Mellon didn't think that was his job, um, and it's it's awful hard to hang the Great Depression on Mellon. You might be able to hang some of the crash on him, some, but the Great Depression, you know, most of it was in the 30s. The what? question is, why didn't the economy recover in 33? Why didn't it recover all the way? It got better year over year, but why didn't it go all the way back in 33, 34, 35, 36, or even under Herbert Hoover after Mellon began to slide out of his role? Well, let's talk about Herbert Hoover briefly, because he responded when he took the reins by creating the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. And in a column you've written recently for City Journal, you remind us that he increased the income tax dramatically, put upward pressure on wages through the Davis-Bacon Act, berated markets, and vilified short sellers. So what was his economic prescription for what ailed the country in the Depression? Herbert Hoover responded as a control freak. Sometimes party is less important than temperament. Hoover was a control freak. He was an enormously successful man. Think of the background. He was the best paid young man in America when he was a young man as a mining engineer. So he barreled into the crisis, um, moved with both hands, and said, I'm going to manage this. Very different from um, his, his predecessors. Uh, and he, even if there was no SEC, thought he should control markets. He berated markets for selling short, berated people for not buying stock. Um, that, that's a start. Um, he also did something that was new at the time, which is he insisted on keeping wages up. He told businesses you got to keep wages up, then people have money and they'll buy a car. Standard modern Keynesianism, but it was new at the time. You think about what businesses are deciding as we are this week. Should I cut wages and lay fewer people off or should I lay enormous numbers of people off but keep wages up for a symbolic few? We would all rather cut wages because we want to help our friends and employees often are friends. Um, but Hoover said, keep wages up. He didn't get to the other part. So obedient businesses kept wages up, but of course they laid off people because they didn't have enough money. And if they couldn't cut wages, they were going to lay off. And that was the beginning of the rigid unemployment of the 1930s. The real reason the Great Depression is called the Great Depression is the rigid unemployment, right? We don't remember what the market did even. We remember that somebody was unemployed for 10 years. That's why the great word is there before the Depression. And this labor policy, very, very rigid, contributed to that unemployment. You can go all, actually, Susan, all the way through the decade and see how Franklin Roosevelt piled on and also pushed wages up. And that was the big economic discovery I made in researching the book, The Forgotten Man, was the labor price mattered. And we, throughout the period, insisted on relatively high wages. There's a, a beautiful chart by a scholar named Lee O'Hanion who's made this topic his life's work. I'm a historian, he's an economist, and he shows that labor price in the 30s was above trend for the entire century. So in the worst period of all, we have above trend la um, labor prices, above trend wages. That's perverse. Wages should be down so we can rehire more from the point of view of the business. So you can look at where Roosevelt continued Hoover's um, negative work on the labor price. We can talk about that if you like. Well, uh, because we have uh, much more history and not so much time, and one aspect of FDR I would like to show is a universal newsreel soon after he took office in 1933 uh, on the economic recovery program for factory, for families, excuse me, which might give you a, a platform to talk about the additional efforts that he took and what it, how they impacted the economy. I have publicly asked that the foreclosure on farms and chattels and homes be delayed until every mortgagor in the country has had full opportunity to take advantage of federal credit. And I make the further request that if there is any family in the United States about to lose its home or its farm, that family should telegraph at once, either to the Farm Credit Administration or the Home Loan Corporation in Washington requesting their help. I do not hesitate to say that although the prices of many products of the farm have gone up, and although many farm families are better off than they were last year, I am not satisfied. It is definitely a part of our policy to increase the rise 
and to extend it to those products that have as yet felt no benefit. If we cannot do this one way, we will do it another. But do it, we will. Amity Schles, there are a lot of echoes to debates we're hearing in Washington right now. So how did this all turn out? Well, it, it didn't get much better on the farm in the 1930s. So think about that. Um, we saved some farms. Again, you have the seen and the unseen. No one can spare the snapshot of a farm family losing its home because it can't pay a bill. It's a wonderful life. Um, we aided farms. Some of them moved along. But the thing that helped um, Americans most vis-a-vis -vis the farm was increased productivity of farms. You know, today uh, farms do very well, but almost no Americans live on farms, right? So, so you know, the, the, what, what is the solution um, to an economic crisis? It, it, you can go in and help one group, such as the farmers, but you might hurt another. What I thought of when I heard that farm story was real estate today. So today, this very week, here it is, and we're um, at the end of March in 2020, we're helping people with their rent and, and their pay that they're losing, right? And that's really good. Um, but how do we help the next level up, which is retailers who themselves have mortgages? Well, in six weeks, they're, they're not gonna be able to pay their mortgage either. Well, that's just small companies, we might say, but what about the big companies? Well, in three months, the big retailers aren't gonna be able to pay their mortgage either. It goes all the way up the chain. And as difficult as it is to say, um, helping one group won't necessarily help the other. I actually think that this week, um, the best news we could get is not about markets anymore, um, not what I would have said last week, but about the um, health innovations to curtail the damage of the coronavirus. As the uh, FDR administration progressed and we moved closer to war and then into war, uh, another echo from today uh, of the past, FDR mobilized uh, private companies into wartime production. That debate is going on right now in Washington, D.C. Uh, what can we learn from history about that measure? Well, it's often been said by our parents, for example, my mother um, used to whisper to me because she was a big FDR fan. She would say, you know, FDR didn't end the depression, the war did, you know, in a low voice, because she wanted to credit FDR. Franklin Roosevelt was a wonderful, lovable politician. Um, it's true that it, 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 sometimes a giant amount of spending can bring an economy back like a shot in the arm, like a transfusion. I'm not sure that's true now. This is a different time because the amount of spending we're doing is already almost war level with the, um, if Congress actually puts through this, this giant um, salvation package that we're hearing about this week of hundreds and hundreds of billions. So I, I'm not sure that's true now. It may be Keynesian economics has reached its limit. Um, I'm not opposed personally. I think you, you, what you have to do is separate what we're doing for humanitarian purposes and economic purposes. There are a lot of things we can do, including have you know, the army come in and help or give companies army business and so on um, in the name of humanitarian or social, I don't know, peace. Um, what would help the economy most? And it, it, I'm being a little brave by saying this, um, but it's what I've said in articles the past few weeks is to do something that made the U.S. economy incredibly competitive, such as lowering our capital gains tax to 2% permanently. Then you won't hear that from the White House because the White House says it'll do that. It'll be accused of helping the rich. But what that would mean would be in one afternoon, the rest of the world would jump into our stock market because the rest of the world is sitting back on its heels waiting for a bargain. And we're pretty close to bargain now. And if we lower the cost of capital dramatically, currently the capital gains tax is 20 percent plus a surcharge. Um, the, the, everyone will jump in. It may be in a few weeks we'll be too broken for that. I certainly hope not. But the point is um, our government should be looking for growth measures in the private sector, not for, um, let's say, military mode, Susan, not for martial law necessarily as economic salvation. It may be necessary as social salvation. I hope not, but not as economic salvation. 
So uh, with not enough time to do justice to these historical errors, I want to spend a minute or so on what you've covered in your new book, The Great Society. You mentioned earlier, of course, it was a, a, a period of, of uh, economic growth. Uh, we were engaged in the Vietnam War during this period of time, but it was also a, at some point a period of optimism for people. So what are the takeaways from the Great Society period and LBJ's style of governance that fit what we're going through as a country today? Well, the big takeaway is, you know, the, the people in the Great Society were very lovable. They were deeply lovable. Um, there was the farm policy best and the brightest, and there was the domestic best and the brightest. And they were smart, nice people who loved the people they were helping and were pretty awfully attractive themselves, right? And they had good ideas, and the ideas didn't work out. They hurt the people they love. They hurt themselves. So what I do in the book is trace all these characters, such as Sergeant Shriver um, or uh, trying to think Daniel Patrick Moynihan even is a big character in my book. He's like um, the chorus in a tragedy that says the truth because he saw folly even as he committed folly, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. So that's one lesson. Even clever people, the cleverest and best people, people have been compared to Edmund Burke, as Moynihan has, make a lot of errors when they're dealing with um, big-scale government projects. That's one lesson. Um, and the other lesson in the Great Society is that private companies can teach us a lot. One of the things I learned about Intel's predecessor, Fairchild, for example, um, a great goal in the 1960s was to help Native Americans. That was part of the Great Society. Uh, and to create jobs for them, even on reservations. And we did try and do that, you know. Um, I, I, to look at the reservations now, it's, it's not clear. Um, those especially government-type jobs worked out. But Fairchild, the predecessor to Intel, created a chip factory. And I never knew this till I researched this book in New Mexico in Shiprock. And that chip factory employed a lot of Native Americans. They were very good at chip work because they were used to needlework. So they were used to very fine work. And th this, this chip factory was the pride of Fairchild and also, I believe, of the local community. There's some good histories of it online. Um, that wasn't noticed. And eventually uh, that factory went away because there were too many protests there. Um, and Fairchild Intel did what other companies did and put their factory elsewhere. The point of that is the private sector can do more than you think. Um, I, I, one of the companies, um, and that when you think about government and, I don't know, official planning, uh, you often get a disappointing result. One of the companies I trace in this book is Toyota. And one of the heroes of the book who falls is Walter Ruther of the UAW, the un mighty United Auto Workers that dealt with Ford. In 1968, the United Auto Workers were very concerned with getting Lyndon Johnson reelected and then another Democrat reelected. And so they, they didn't really pay much attention to this little importer, this little importer, Toyota, that was beginning to bring in the Corolla. And uh, I, I tell um, quite a bit how um, this upstart, this unexpected twerp, Toyota came to be big. Uh, it, the point being, um, markets matter, uh, tension to markets matter. Sometimes you get so involved in politics, you, you miss a, a bigger challenge in the private sector. We uh, have to fast forward to the most recent crisis, and that's the 2007-2008 start of the Great Recession. It's really not enough distance for historians to have had a, a long lens to look back. But let's listen to Barack Obama, January 27, 2009, just after taking office and announcing his administration's response. Uh, the main message I have is that uh, the statistics every day underscore the urgency of the economic situation. The American people expect action. Uh, they want us to put together a recovery package that puts people back to work, that creates investments that assure our long-term energy independence, an effective health care system, an education system that works. Uh, they want our infrastructure rebuilt, and they want it done wisely uh, so that we're not wasting taxpayer money. So Amity Schles, uh, in looking at that, the dollar figures the government 
uh, put uh, towards this problem just uh, in 2007, 2008. We're in the trillions, the kind of money we're talking about now. What can we conclude from the reaction that the economy had to the intervention that Washington took back then? Well, the economy didn't really like it, which is why, um, very surprisingly to us now, President Obama had that urgency. Doesn't it come as a surprise to think? Because we think of uh, 2008 as forgotten, but it wasn't forgotten for a long time. It took many years for unemployment to come back to levels we consider rational. Now it took a number of years for the stock market to come back. If you Google anemic recovery, You'll see that describes the Bush-Obama recovery. And action didn't turn out to be the trick as much as uh, markets and opportunity. In fact, um, in economic theory, if you look at the period, what we call what went on both under Presidents Bush and President Obama, um, both under President Bush and President Obama, was malinvestment, which is money flowed into areas that weren't particularly productive. Money didn't always have the opportunity to flow where there was great productivity. So it was investment as much for politics as for economics, and that's always very wasteful. When when all of us look back at the period, um, we wish that we, uh, at least I wish, that the government had been more free market at the time, and we thought the world's gonna end. It's sort of like today, Susan. Um, it, but what's clear in retrospect is we panicked and applied too many government solutions to the 2008 crisis. But because of its recent nature, are, there are an awful lot of people in Washington today who were here for that. Uh, are you seeing evidence that lessons learned at the time are being applied to the current situation? Um, well, yes. I mean, they're, they're, they're applying their lesson learned, which is spending feels good. And they're seeing it works, well, as of now, um, perhaps not so well. Don't think uh, last week or the week before when there was a big commitment to spending, anyone expected the stock market wouldn't go up, but it didn't. Of course, we can hope it will go up this week and next week, um, whether or not it's because of more stimuli. But it, we may have um, used up our, our armory when it comes to stimulus. It, the interest rate can't go much below zero. So, so now is the time to switch to thinking about what would make businesses want to grow, not how we can stimulate them into growth. You say the interest rate can't go much below zero, but in fact, in Germany, negative interest rates. What would the impact of that be on the, on the U.S. economy? Well, I, I, what that does is in the longer term, that sets you up for inflation. So, I mean, you go one way all the way and then you, you reel back, um, in my view. Um, but it, what it basically says is you can't, for the moment, use monetary stimulus to ha get a result. It's what they call pushing on a string. Um, it's like pushing on. So we've used the monetary tool. We've used the fiscal, the spending tool. What are we going to do next? The only thing we can do is say we're open for business. Here's how. Um, in the middle of a pandemic, you can't do that. But after a point, you can. So we have a little less than 10 minutes left, so time to put a capper on all of this conversation. People are already seeing columns with headlines sort of uh, like this. The United States or the world will never be the same again after this. Looking back over the history of past national and global crises, is it, okay, is it appropriate to make that claim? Have each one of them changed the nature of society when they've occurred? Yes, they have. I mean, the, the um, yes, they have. Each... Each downturn changes the nature of society. I think um, the pandemic will change the freedom of the United States um, very tragically. Um, but I also think that um, the pandemic is important because we might get the vaccine. When you think, think about what people said separate to the stock market about AIDS, AIDS would change everything forever. And we didn't imagine we'd ever have medication for AIDS or be able to prevent it. I mean, in the beginning, in the panic with AIDS. And yet very quickly, we found good medicines for AIDS. They're not perfect. We've lost some people. But it's a, a pretty small problem in our political discussion now, AIDS, because of all the good medication that was found. So this pandemic, I hope, will show us that we have to allow pharma companies to invest more in vaccines. We have to give more freedom to drug makers. I actually believe that. The pharma 
guys are turning out to be the good guys in this particular story. I need to hear more about your thoughts on protecting civil liberties. Uh, you made reference to that. What were you thinking? Well, I was thinking that um, a public in an emergency, whether it's a flood like Katrina or a health emergency, the government always takes over and sometimes too much. Uh, the question is, um, it's like the people in the World Trade Center who were told by public health authorities in that instance, maybe the fire department or the building, don't come down. The stairs are crowded. Stay where you are. And, and those were the people, unfortunately, who, who perished. And we, we don't know whether flattening the curve, which is the expression now, that is everyone in isolation at home to flatten the spread of the disease, is the wisest course. We kind of think it is, but we always have to be careful about government recommendations. Um, maybe some in future might not be so good. We have to be wary um, you know, when we talk about the forgotten man, we always talk about some, the, someone who's left out of a government recommendation. And that's been my theme all along. You know, in the 30s, my book, The Forgotten Man, was about the man who didn't get to enjoy any recovery in the 30s. So, so I'm particularly cautious about, about civil liberties. That's what classical liberals are. So you are a presidential historian. We've talked about a number of them, Hoover, Coolidge, FDR, Presidents Bush and Obama. Uh, we're all watching President Trump and his response to this. Can you talk from that historical perspective about the role that a president's sense of how history will judge them impacts current decision-making process for presidents? Oh, yeah. You think about Theodore Roosevelt. To me, he's the president President Trump is most like. He believed that you ought to jump in and fix things. And he did try to do that in the 1907 um, period. Um, you know, that was that was very important to him when we had a crisis. I'm just uh, reeling back thinking about that. Um, maybe he made a mess of it. So um, there's a wonderful historian named Albro Martin who talks about what the government did to railroads. First, we blame the railroads, J.P. Morgan, then we needed them to rescue us. Um, but he was also an inspiring president. Many Republicans love TR. He had a big heart. He could be a military hero. So so that's what President Trump is like. He likes to be a hero. Herbert Hoover also liked to be a hero. He was also from business. Uh, you know, it, as I said earlier, um, presidency is less about political party than about temperament. It, it's what kind of man are you or woman and how do you react in a downturn? Do you take it all upon yourself or do you say, some things I cannot change? Uh, maybe, um, you know, maybe I need to cheer people up, but I can't fix the spread of this problem right here. That's the way Calvin Coolidge was. And I admire very much Coolidge because he saw what it was he could change and what he couldn't. And the 20s were a pretty good decade. They weren't just a bubble in Gatsby's champagne glass. Uh, so I recommend a look at him as well. Well, thank you very much for spending an hour with us uh, from Maine, where you are staying safe from COVID-19 with your family. We appreciate your historical perspective on what's happening to our country in this particular time of crisis. Thank you, Amity Schlaes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. <laughs>